This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Mind Love Premium, episode 73. Today's episode is all about changing your mind and failing forward. I don't want to be held hostage by my opinions from like five years ago or even two years ago. If somebody wants to be like, look, back then you said this, it's like, yeah. And then I changed my mind. You know, we have to allow for people to grow and evolve and change their minds. And one of the ways that you do that is by being the person that does that for other people and also just continuously doing that yourself and setting that example of being like, whatever, I mean, I'm going to be wrong. Like, I'm not going to get things right all the time. It's a new day, a new episode, and a new opportunity to subscribe to the podcast. You're listening for the first time. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you always know about new episodes. Plus, it makes you one of my favorite people. Because the more subscribers I have, the more I attract amazing guests to help better serve you. So don't forget to subscribe. If you've been listening to Mind Love for a while, then you've probably heard plenty of stories about how people have found their purpose and made their mess their message. And this can be super inspiring because it can give you a framework to follow if you know the value that you want to give to the world. But it can also be a little discouraging if you're not so clear on what that purpose is. Because so many stories of bringing your goals to life include having a clear intention and a detailed visualization of who you want to be and what you want to do. So if those things aren't so clear, then visualization can bring up feelings of confusion or even failure because you're not even sure what to visualize. So you feel like you're failing before you've even started. I know this because I've been there. I was 32 when I really started to feel purposeful in my career or even my life, and I know people who are much older than I was. Before that, I took jobs because of salary or because they wanted me or because I happened to know someone who worked there, and none of those reasons were specific to any of my actual desires. I finally got fed up one day, so I did decide to get really intentional and figure out what it was that I actually want. I started journaling for hours a day and challenging myself with questions that brought me that clarity. It's amazing how much you'll find out about yourself if you just give yourself the space to find the answers. And once I knew what it was that I wanted to do, I meticulously mapped out my goals. I broke everything down that I had to do. And then I broke those things down so that there was no bigger task than just 15 minutes of my time so I could make even the most daunting tasks feel achievable. I was checking things off so quickly that I started to believe I could actually do this. And then I mapped out the next year and the year after that. And finally, my life felt like it was moving forward. I wonder though, can anyone find that clarity and make rapid progress at any time in their life? Or was it that I could finally find clarity and make rapid progress because it was the right time in my life? I think it's a little bit of both. I think if there's a will, there's a way. And when you reach that fed up point, 
it probably is the right time in your life. And I don't think that being intentional and mapping it all out is the only way. Right now, for example, I'm moving forward differently than before. I'm actually not planning that far ahead in the future. I'm being in the moment and seeing where it's guiding me. I'm a new mom raising my first child, so it's been a little hard to plan ahead because I don't know what his next phase is going to look like. Will he play on his own? Will he nap consistently? Will I be holding him a lot? It's also a little hard to plan ahead when there are so many unknowns. Will we live in the same place? Will we move? When will we move? Will we have another baby? Will we be able to travel next year or ever? Will aliens make an appearance to save us all? Or will they want to destroy us? Or will it actually be Project Bluebeam? You know, the leaked CIA plan to fake an alien invasion to tighten the reins of control on us all? Too much? Okay, my bad. I'll reel it back in. Well, the good news is your guidance is in the present moment. Your intuition is in the present moment. There's not just one way to find yourself right in the middle of your dream. You don't have to have it all figured out for the universe to work its magic. It actually has a funny way of pushing you toward the path you were meant to be on. So today we're talking to someone who didn't have it all figured out. She had too many dreams and wanted to do too many things. And this is actually a special interview because it's one of my very best friends. I've known her for almost 15 years, so I've seen the journey. I remember when she felt lost. I remember when she felt like she was wasting time or wasting her potential. I remember when she felt like she didn't have enough self-control to succeed or that her past had colored her present too much to be who she was supposed to be. And I remember that so well because I was in the same boat with her. Her name is Bridget Fetisi. She's a comedian, a brilliant writer, and unexpectedly, a political commentator. <laughs> in the last five years in particular, she's started to realize her dreams pretty quickly, and it's been fun to watch her succeed. She's been interviewed by some really big names, including Joe Rogan, on three different occasions over the last few years. Bridget is one of my longest friendships, and also one of the friendships that I value the most. We have been through so many phases together and have seen so many different versions of each other. We also have a lot of similar beliefs and a lot of different beliefs, but we have never once let those beliefs cause us to see one another differently. And I'm even more proud of that now during a time where it seems that people have no patience for each other's differences. You hear someone voted a certain way or wants a certain kind of freedom or believes in something and suddenly you're out to destroy their life or make sure everyone hates them as much as you suddenly do. It's really sad to me and terrible for your spirit because it is a surefire way that you give all your power to your ego. It's almost as if people don't realize that it's actually a powerful form of self-work to love one another despite their differences or even just scroll past a comment without trying to berate them or that having people on the complete opposite spectrum of your beliefs is what makes this world beautiful and multifaceted. I admire Bridget even more because she's dealt with cancel culture and she has stayed strong in who she is and what she wants to say. And whenever she feels set back in some way, she just picks herself up and keeps moving. As she calls it, she's failing forward. And just by doing that, by being totally herself and sharing her voice with the world, she's found herself exactly where she's supposed to be, doing exactly what she's supposed to be doing. 
And just by the nature of who she is and the awareness that she has, she has so much wisdom to share with us. So three key things we will learn are the dangers of running from our shame, how to push through resistance, and how to gracefully change your mind or your beliefs. And if this is your first time giving your mind a little love, I have a few goodies for you. First, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And second, sign up for the Morning Mind Love. Think of it like a weekday oracle from your highest self to help you start each day with a positive focus. Plus, you'll get two gifts absolutely free, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up or text the word MORNING to 33777. And now let's welcome Bridget Fetisi to the show. Thank you for having me. I am so excited about this. This has actually been a long time coming since I first started my podcast. You were one of the first people I wanted to bring on, and then we just hadn't scheduled it. So this is a long time in the making. I know. You've been on mine, and yeah. people love that episode. Oh, that's awesome. I actually didn't know how much how well it would translate. <laughs> I still hear about it all the time. Yeah, people loved it. So we have basically grown up together. That's <laughs> You're my friend that I've grown up with. I've had friends for longer technically, but none where we were actually very close. So I have like high school friends that I've seen uh, every now and then, but like you are the sustaining friend through all of my evolutions. And I think it's pretty <laughs> amazing because... Almost everybody uh, with each phase of my life, there's been some sort of drop off. (laughs) Yeah, it does seem like that happens. I think it's part of just aging and changing. But then definitely if if you're evolving and I mean, how many friends did I lose when I stopped partying? It's just innumerable. (laughs) Well, when you actually go about losing a friend how do you internalize that? Like for me, it's actually, it's funny because I have to bring intention to it um, and realize that, you know, this might be the best thing for me, but emotionally it's been pretty difficult. Some, it just depends on the friendship because sometimes I just realize that perhaps that person, we didn't have the kind of friendship I thought we had. Maybe it was based around partying, for example, is one thing. Another area where I've actually shed a lot of friends that was more painful I've found is around like the culture war that's taken over everything in the past five years, um, five to six years really. And it started, the process I think started really around, you know, obviously the rise of Trump, but then um, COVID and vaccines and like differences in opinion on all of that stuff has accelerated a process that was already started. And so that was that was more surprising and even family. So those were those were more surprising friendships and more I think emotionally upsetting friendships that I lost because I was under the impression that you could have friends and have differences of opinion. (laughs) (laughs) Weren't we all? I don't know where I got that crazy idea. (laughs) But apparently that's not, it's just wild. So that, that's something that's been harder for me to get my mind around than say 
a lifestyle change where you just outgrow friends or you move into a different phase in your life. I know you have a baby and once my friends who have kids, like they have to hang out with other people who have kids just, you know, for the, it's like convenient, but also you just need a different kind of support when you're pregnant, when you're a new mom or a, a many children mom. And I think that's more natural. The other one that I've experienced doesn't feel as natural to me. Yeah. One, it feels like people are reinforcing their egos versus the other. It feels like people are just evolving, you know, evolving right. their, their selves, their lifestyles. Yeah. I'm not going to hang out with like a bunch of party girls who still do blow when I'm 90 days sober, you know, like, <laughs> and you, you make new friends and that's happened when I was doing a lot of comedy. I was just around more of my comedy friends more often, but then I really had to step back and ask myself, are these friendships reciprocal? You know, sometimes it's like I'm putting a lot into friendships, but I realize if I never reach out to that person, I won't necessarily hear back from them. So I think throughout my the course of my life being a bit of a people pleaser and really just wanting to belong, I've put more effort into friendships that weren't necessarily friendships once I actually stepped back and allowed them to breathe and see if that that was being reciprocated. So yeah, my my circle has, you know, gotten smaller over the years. <laughs> I think that's healthy though. My circle was huge and I didn't know any other middle names. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this one is, this friendship is one of my friendships that I value the most. And we kind of, uh, skipped over the whole intro because we dove right into our relationship. But, uh, for the listeners who don't know who you are, like I do, tell us a little bit about basically your evolution, because it's, it's interesting how you've grown your influence and you've grown your platform is just so different than anybody else that I know. I have no idea what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like I'm playing a giant game of basically yes and in like an improv class. But I think I'm, I'm a writer and a comedian and I, I just really wanted to be a creative. I moved to LA when I was pretty young originally to be an actress when I was like 19, 20, 20, right out of rehab. I don't recommend that. And then I moved back east um, for many different reasons, which is where my family's from, and got kind of caught in the trap of the waitressing rut in a resort town. Always wanted to be a writer. Started a brand when I was like 26, 27, No, I guess I was younger than that. I was like 25 and started this, had this idea, which was originally around greeting cards and started, made up a word that didn't make sense at the time, although it's come to make a lot more sense, but it was basically when reality becomes parody, which in 2005 didn't really make a whole lot of sense and took a lot of explaining. And then kept on trying, went bankrupt. I got married in that, in those years ended up getting divorced. So my 20s were the regular, (laughs) just crazy. It was like one mistake after another. And they were a bit of a disaster. I was all over the place, all over the country. 
I was drinking and partying a lot, being in the restaurant industry. And then uh, I set out on an adventure taking my company. Like a, I was like, I'm a brand. I'm going to go on tour. Looking back, I was like really far ahead of the curve of what was coming. You know, I, I see like I, I basically created what is now Patreon in my original website. It was a subscriber site. Stuff, Some stuff was behind the paywall. It was actually a better version and it still really doesn't exist. Like the version that I created that I want still does not really exist where you have like a storefront and all your content and stuff behind a paywall and stuff that's in front of the paywall and a kind of newsletter all integrated into one. Now it's like you have Substack, you have Patreon, you have all these different platforms that you can express your different whatever you might be putting out there. And it just, I didn't have the money to sustain it. I didn't have a business plan and I was also a disaster. But I maintained the website for a long time as a blog and I just kept writing, which is where I think I got that kind of 10,000 hours that they talk about. And then I moved back to LA in like 2007 and wanted to be a writer kind of stumbled into stand-up comedy, got dared to do that, started doing that, really got into it, and just kept following the creative impulse. Like, I, I really haven't, at, at around 19, when I so very dramatically took a turn from being kind of like a straight-A kid who was going to go to college and just follow that normal path to a girl who ended up in rehab, <laughs> failing that early actually really liberated me to, to just follow a different path than the one that had laid out, that had been laid out before me. And I just kept, I've just kept doing that because after decades of doing it, I don't really know anything else. And that led to traveling around the world. And for two, a couple of years, I just left L.A., I, st I was writing scripts and teaching yoga, working with autistic kids, just doing whatever it took, waiting tables again. And then 20, 2013 is when I ended up getting sober. And that grounded me a lot, um, just in that I couldn't really fly around all over the place like I was. I mean, I always joke like I made alcoholism look amazing. <laughs> I was having a lot of fun. <laughs> It's just that I was miserable on the inside toward the end there. And I started writing, getting paid to write for Playboy, which is something I'd always wanted to do. When I, I still have a, a, like a proposal I wrote for Maxim back when I first started my company. In like 2002 or three. I wrote this proposal for Maxim about why I would be like the best columnist for them. So that was like a kind of long, a dream that was better than the dream I had that came to fruition. And that was like 2015. But that put me in the very online world. And I had already been on Twitter for like two years at that point, because actually you were the one I was I remember I was over at your house. And I was like, I don't get Twitter. It doesn't make sense to me. I hate it. And you're like, you have to engage. And then Dane Cook <laughs> tweeted something really stupid. And I responded to it. And then he retweeted it. <laughs> I was like, what's happening? You're like, oh, Dane Cook retweeted you, like dunking on him. And that was really the beginning of the, the addiction that replaced all my other addictions. But 
it made sense to me. Like I found my people on there. I found the writers and the comedians and suddenly this platform didn't, that didn't make sense, but it also opened up a lot of opportunities with editors. It's how I got my job at Playboy and lots of other writing jobs, lots of people for my podcast. So that took on a life of its own. And then once I started writing a Playboy, I was exposed to like the very online crowd and then this culture war took over and I really had to, I noticed that I was just not saying things that I wanted to say. And then I started asking myself why. And I was like, well, I haven't come this far being independent and doing whatever I want to like stop now. And so I just started saying things that I wanted to say. And then things just took on a life of their own from there. And um, Rogan actually told me one night when we were up at the store to start a podcast. So I started a podcast because if Rogan tells you to do that, <laughs> you probably should. <laughs> <laughs> and I started a podcast and then I, I really wanted to, I had always wanted to start like a show based on just me making fun of everything in the culture. So we did that. So yeah, I've just, I've really just followed that creative instinct and when the and the opportunities were coming more from this kind of culture area instead of I mean obviously I wasn't going to be getting like hired in a writer's room anytime soon saying things that weren't necessarily the approved narrative I guess is the best way to describe it so I just leaned into I was like you know what I can either shut my mouth make the jokes everybody else is making get like a job on a late night show or like in a writer's room but and be miserable because I'm just being like lying to myself or lying to everyone around me and live a double life, which I've done. Or I can just keep being honest, but at least I'll be being honest, which looking back was the right decision. <laughs> right. So that kind of brings me, I mean, it's a, it's been a very long and winding and very strange road indeed. It's not... I, I don't know that I could like go out and give a TED talk on how to replicate it. <laughs> <laughs> like really mess up a lot. Failing forward. <laughs> <laughs> failing, failing forward. Exactly. Well, it's interesting because you were one of the first people that I knew personally that received uh, like hate online from strangers. <laughs> I guess I knew, I knew like people that were, influencing in a different way. And so the, the reason I say that you grew your influence in such a different way than anybody I knew is that most of the people that I know that became influencers were like, okay, well, I have this one thing to teach. Let me bring all of the resources together, or create a course or a coaching program or something like that. And then they're like, I'm talking about emotional eating. And then they just talk right. about emotional eating or I'm talking about building a business. And you just went online and started calling out the craziness of the world before. And now we all recognize there's craziness in the world. But before, like when you started talking about stuff, I had no idea about any of it. Actually, I was one of those just kind of politically blinded people where I'm like, OK, I think I am on this side and whatever it is. And I didn't know what was coming up. And then you would start saying things and I'm like, I don't know how I feel about that. I didn't even know that was a thing. <laughs> but yeah. then your voice just kept growing because you were being authentically you. And I feel like so many people have to do it the other way where they're like, this is what I want to teach. How am I supposed to do this authentically? And it doesn't often come across that way.
Yeah, I think that I I didn't, you know, jokingly back in like 2005, 2006, I was aware I that we were all going to become brands. I, I knew that. I mean, I took, I was going to get my logo tattooed on me as a joke. Thank God that fell through in like a very <laughs> fat, fantastical way. But I, you know, this was pre-Kardashians, like the Hilton sisters were probably the most popular thing at that time. And uh, so it was like the dawn of social media, the dawn of YouTube, but I could see the writing on the wall and, and knew, I really respect people with brand discipline. You know, I know, I know a lot of people, influencers who are all across the board. Tom Brady's a great example. That guy has incredible brand discipline. He's always on message. And there's this phrase that's kind of come up in this time, like, oh, they, you know, so-and-so knows what the assignment is or like yeah. that brand knows what the assignment is even. And it does feel like people who are that disciplined, even Beyonce, like they're incredibly disciplined about their brand. And I am not at all. I'm not either. <laughs> my, my brand is definitely chaos. You know, I've been, it's like, even just before we got on the phone, I was on this call, I was trying to I was looking at my Substack, which I originally started and I was going to just have one thing that I did because for once in my life, like just have one thing. Fetacy was always a disaster too because I just wanted to do so many things. And now I'm adding, I mean, I went from being in, told I was in menopause to like pregnant in two months. So even sitting down and writing about that today, I'm like, this is like crazy. It's no wonder it's taken me you know, even like six months to try and get my mind around it. And I still fully haven't. And aside from just being pregnant and how wild that is, I forget that I was basically told like you're in menopause, you can't have kids. So I started adding that category to Substack, And then now it's like all over the place. I'm like, I have to rename this whole Substack because it's not all encompassing enough. Like <laughs> It's not politically homeless with Bridget Fetacy. It's more like a catch-all for like, for what? I don't even know. So I think that in general, I just don't have that kind of discipline, but I have never really wanted it because it's given me the ability, like you said, to kind of come up in this way that might be more authentic, but it's just because I'm not disciplined. <laughs> you know, I'm not like focused on one thing and I'm if I, I probably would be making a lot more money if I only was doing one thing and only was focusing on one thing, but it's just not the way my brain operates. And I, I like being able to kind of pivot from one thing to another and not being trapped because I do find that people who have that kind of singular focus often get trapped by their own audience and by their own brand. I think that's such a good point. I, I am kind of the same way. Like people were like niche down and niche down. <laughs> so sort of a You're like I'm gonna niche out. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna niche all over your face. Mm -hmm. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, I I remember people saying, "Well, mind love is a great idea, but it's so broad. Like focus on one thing." And to your point, I think the more you niche down, the more you focus on that one thing, however you want to word it. Yes, it, you become known as an expert for that thing faster. But is that really going to light you up? And that's where I I have always questioned it is because 
I'll spend a while just doing one thing. And it's, it's like, there's all these other aspects of my soul that need expressing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I have to keep it a little bit more broad and it, it might take a little bit longer uh, to get to where you want to get, but the, you might ultimately like the journey. And so what I'm always telling people is that like, is that there's not just one way to find your success or to find that meaning that you're searching for in your life. It's you have to follow your own inner guidance. And I like the word choice that you said at the very beginning of this, where you're just kind of yes anding life as, as you go. But with what you do, I'm sure there's a lot of opportunities that come your way that sound kind of exciting, but it, you don't have the bandwidth or whatever. How do you choose which things to yes and? Or are you just saying yes to everything and seeing what sticks? No, not probably as much as I was in the beginning. You know, so at the beginning, yeah, when you have time and you have energy and... You're not pregnant. <laughs> yeah. I, I also think like I've become a lot more conscious of my, you just become more business oriented as you have a business. And I've become more conscious of how truly the only resource that I really have is time. Like that's really the only resource that I have control over. And it's the, the primary resource that I have. And I've had good business advisors who have helped me kind of navigate those this transition of saying yes to certain things and saying no to other things. I mean, it gets to the point even where I've been asking myself, like, there's so much shame that I'm carrying around the fact that I haven't written a book yet. And I'm like, why haven't I written a book? Why? Why? <laughs> and then I hear my, you know, from my it's really seems like more and more nowadays a book is really just something people write as a calling card so that they can get paid a lot of money to go speak, you know, exorbitant amounts of money to go speak. And that would be nice. And it's this thing that kind of legitimizes you. You can be like, here's this book. And also, I mean, for me, I feel like it would just be an act of discipline at this point to even write one. But there are all these other reasons that people write them. They have these ideas. That, but I've read a lot of books from a lot of people that I've interviewed. And when I was asked to write about a book that I thought everyone should read from 2021, I could not come up with a single book. I'm, I'm like, a lot of these books are very good and they're very well written, but they're very grounded in this like news cycle churn that is, you know, like, get that book out because this is the thing right now that everybody's talking about, but will it stand the test of time? I I don't know. You know, is this book going to be relevant? And I would like to write something that people would want to read in five or 10 years and still feel something or would still be meaningful to them or moving to their spirit and soul in the way that books and memoirs and those things that have stuck with me have been to me. I don't really want to write something that's just like of this time. So I also think part of it is, is it worth my time to write a book? (laughs) Like when I really drill down how many hours I'm going to spend writing this book and how much time it's going to take me to write the proposal, get the book, write the book and what I'll probably make from that book. It's like on an hourly, I'm like, I don't know. 
it might be more worth it for me to try and build a Substack, you know, where you're putting out little mini chapters or you're putting out little mini essays constantly, but there's a higher likelihood of me monetizing that in a way that is sustainable and long-term than there is for me to write a book. So it's not totally crazy when I feel so bad and beat myself up about it. I'm like, is it really that crazy though? You know, when you can monetize your writing in a subscription format that you would look at this from like a cost benefit analysis and say, is a book worth it? I don't know. So, yeah, I I mean, these are the kinds of like math problems (laughs) and there are just some things you can't put money on, like a dollar value on. There's a lot of things I do that take time. And then like my business advisors will be like, well, that's just marketing. Like essentially anything I'm doing that's not scalable is marketing. (laughs) Yeah. And I didn't even know what scalable meant. You know, it's like, what does that mean? And so a lot of the stuff. I think it's a good point because so many people do something because they think it's a good idea and then they start to do it and then they feel disappointed. My friend calls that the success hangover. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it reminds me of when I was actually choosing to start a podcast, the reason that I chose it because I was like, do I start a YouTube channel? Do I start a blog? And like, it was early enough that all of those things were fine still, you know? Yeah. And, and I ended up what finally got me on a path where I was confident in what I was doing because I, I was like you, I tried so many things. I even had a website called gifts for teen boys just because <laughs> I had the, I had the exact like buyer's intent domain name. I was like, this could make money. And then I was like, I don't think I even like teen boys, which I'm going to have to get over because I'm going to have one sometime soon. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I'm like um, a travel blog for a while. There's a, a number of different things that I tried. But when I finally kept realizing, okay, I keep starting things and then realizing I don't want to do this at all. Like, how do I make sure that something's sustainable? That's when I started asking myself similar questions to you kind of sussing out is a book worth it to me? You know, it's like, why do I have this internal resistance? And so you can either sit there in the shame of it that I, that you're resisting something that you think you should want to do, or you can like unravel it and see it from a different perspective. And for you, you're like, I'm not sure that's going to be worth my time for my current goals. And for me, I was like, well, what do I want to do with my life? And I wanted to, I could, I just kept picturing myself speak on stages And that might be evolving for me right now, now that I have a kid. (laughs) But uh, I was like, how can I speak with nobody else's permission to where I'm also practicing this? And so that was Mm. kind of one of the first things about a podcast. And also, I was like, I have all these cool blog ideas or YouTube ideas. Why do I keep stopping myself? Well, I don't want to have to look cute for the camera and I'm not yet comfortable with myself to not look cute for the camera. (laughs) And I can always get in my own head when it comes to writing and I can just speak a lot faster. And so I think the, what I'm just gathering from all of this is like asking yourself the questions, like, like figuring out the long term or, or asking challenge your own resistance. Like, why is this coming up? Because if shame is attached to it also, then you're, not going to get anywhere with that because you're going to be, regardless of what you choose, you're going to be carrying around this like dark cloud with it. And I think it puts so much more pressure on the thing. So there was a great quote that I can't stop thinking about what that somebody said to me the other day, when, when we run from our shame, we legitimize its claims against us. And I loved that. And it, it's something that I've looked at emotionally in a lot of my 
life. You know, I've, I've faced a lot of the shame of like behavioral things, addiction, emotional, all, a lot of the like stuff around sex, stuff around all kinds of things, but I really haven't looked at it. What's interestingly coming up lately is the way in which I shame myself around my work and the ideas that I have about what I should be doing, you know, versus what I am doing. I always joke, like, does anyone ever write again once they start getting paid to talk? (laughs) (laughs) Why would you? (laughs) Um, And it is, but writing is like my, and then I balance that against the book that I love so much by Stephen Pressfield, The War of Art, not The Art of War, The War of Art. And he writes about resistance and like resistance is that thing. And I have so much resistance around writing. And it's like this, you have to slay this dragon. And the only way to slay the dragon is like sit down and do this thing every single day, no matter what. Because generally the thing that you have the most resistance around is probably the thing that you should be doing. And writing is my roots. You know, that's what I love doing. I I sat down this morning to start this geriatric mommy just to start writing and I banged out like well you know 1100 words in like an hour and just like pours out of me and I was like oh yeah I just haven't been doing the work so some of it is yes there's a reason that I'm maybe not allocating my time to this right now because time is limited I make a lot more money doing other things and this doesn't have the same kind of payoff in the immediate that it might in the long term. And perhaps there's a be- better medium for me to express these things without having to like write a book proposal and go sell a book. The other thing is just plain resistance. You know, what is the resistance? Why is it there? And really sitting down and doing the work because some of it is just laziness. I, it's, it, writing's harder. It's just, it's, it comes easier, but it's harder for me to sit down and focus for an hour <laughs> than it is <laughs> to sit down and have a conversation or do our show or whatever. It just, it, it, that kind of focus is much more challenging for me these days now that I have no attention span. <laughs> I know we've just been destroying our attention spans for years and then wondering why and like thinking yeah. it's a sign that we shouldn't do this big thing that we've been wanting to do forever. But it's like, Johan no. Hari has a new book coming out about this. Really? Yeah. He, he's the one who wrote Lost Connections and it's all about this topic, like what happened to our attention and why. And it's great. So far, it's great. Yeah. He's, I, he's good I've on done a stuff. few interviews on digital detoxing specifically and like you, uh, tech has become my biggest addiction now. It's like over the years, I've overcome bulimia. I've overcome Adderall, copious amounts of party drugs. <laughs> yeah. Now, most recently, alcohol. And and then like every three weeks or so, I delete all of my apps. I tried to get the, <laughs> the, I tried to get the light phone for a while and I couldn't handle the text messaging experience. You couldn't even send photos. I'm like, a new mom has to send photos. This is the only thing I need to be able to do. So I, was, I wiped my whole phone, made it like completely white with like alternative icons. And now I have a second and a third page full of icons again. <laughs> it's just a revolving door. <laughs> I can get addicted to anything. I, it's so funny with the tech stuff because I I don't have Twitter on my phone. I only have it on and it saved me from just 
like mindlessly being on Twitter. But now I signed up for Duolingo because I'm mad that I'm not learning Spanish. I'm like, I should freaking know Spanish. I, <laughs> I took eight years of it. I've always wanted to know another language. I'm squandering all this time on social media doing stuff that I don't want to do. And I'll start, I'm like, okay, honey, I'm going to do my 20 minute lesson. And then like an hour will go by and he's like, what are you doing? <laughs> and it's just me addicted to it. He's like, you told me you were going to like come watch TV with me. And like a half hour ago, what is going on? And I'm just like addicted to the little ding. They've gamified it, which is great. I mean, there are worse things I could be addicted to, but still, it's robbing me time with my spouse. It's like something that I can't stop doing once I start doing it. I'm like, oh my God, I'm addicted to this freaking Spanish app. Like, I'm the same way. Like I I have like my morning routine drink that I make every single day and I make it, it's a very elaborate drink that includes a frother and like seven different ingredients. And if I do, like- Is turmeric was, one of them? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> turmeric a seven mushroom blend i basically made my own uh mud water i don't know if you know that brand but um i found a diy recipe and it's even better than the original but yeah there's a shit ton of turmeric in it well i one day shane was <laughs> i was pregnant i will tell you i was pregnant at the time but shane was making his coffee and i knew it was gonna take like five more minutes and i actually started to cry because i was <laughs> expecting my drink and I was like so addicted to it I needed it right when I woke up and it ruined my whole day but the funny thing is is you and I both know that we have tendencies to become addicted to things and <laughs> sometimes I notice both of us will identify with that but we've also both overcome more addictions than most people that I know yeah so how do you know when is your trigger point of like okay, this needs to go. And what's your process for actually stepping into that? I do everything cold turkey, like quitting anything. I can't like slowly, I don't yeah. even bother trying moderation. I will, I, with tech in particular, it's hard because it's more behavioral. And I think behavioral addictions are a lot more difficult than like substances, which you can just cut out. So substances come with a whole other all the like habits and the hand to mouth, you know, addictions you're trying to quit. Like if you're quitting smoking and all the routines and the rituals around it. But for the most part, if you quit a substance, you're going to start feeling better a couple, you know, a couple weeks in it. And even with tech, you'll feel better. You know, you'll feel when I was two weeks, like this Christmas, I'm like, I'm just going offline. I'm really going to dig into my life. And there is this feeling of like one of the signs to answer your question for me, is if I'm looking around at my life and I'm like, oh, hello, life. I haven't seen you in a while. <laughs> you know, like, I haven't been cooking. I haven't been present in my life in a way that I am when I'm not addicted to something else. And some of it is just work. Like I have, I have to spend a lot of time working, which is okay. But some of it is those little now for me it's like the tech addictions that kind of rob an hour here an hour there it's a lot more insidious even reading the news in the morning you know it's just insidious I'll read the news instead of doing my 20 minute meditation and that time is limited so I think noticing when the things that I 
aspire to do and the woman that I aspire to be is taking a is not getting done or taking a back seat to now it's more like mindless scrolling yeah. mindless reading mindless scrolling mindless I'm luckily like hate Instagram um but even that I'll find myself just mindlessly scrolling and it's it's something that flies in the face of mindfulness which is something I try very hard to practice but it is so built to prey on the weakest parts of my human nature and brain that I'm also not arrogant or smart enough to think that I can outthink these billion dollar apps that are you know optimized to <laughs> constantly and know more about like my phone probably knows more about me than I know about me it's just a fact you know knows me like the true me more than I know the the ugly parts of myself that I maybe don't want to look like where I squander time um how do you how I do you like on. manipulate yeah it's like it's yeah. funny because I I um used Think to work in that, like what they know about us <laughs> from our behavior online it's crazy because I actually used to work in apps and it was before I was actually trying to be mindful about my life and so I was just looking at it from like how do I make a, a product that people get hooked on and that right. sounds great but on the other side, you can reword that to how do I make people as addicted to this thing as possible to where they're interfering with their lives? Right. <laughs> and it's interesting to know that even the the design of the addiction of these things goes so deep that, for example, if you log on to Facebook or Twitter or whatever, usually you log on and it takes a second for the notification to like you're like, oh, how many notifications do I have? And it won't show anything, and then it'll show. Like it's like one one second in, and and you think maybe, oh, that's just loading time. That's what it takes. No, they have the ability to have you open the app and that already be there, but they know that one second of anticipatory waiting, just the one second, actually increases your dopamine even more. It's the craving dopamine, and then you see it, and then there's more dopamine. Then you click it, there's more dopamine, and then you actually right. read them, and there's more dopamine, and so. Every stage of the design is like working against us. And what I'm always saying is you need to know how you're being influenced if you want to live an intentional life because you can do all the things. But if you're living life normally right now, eating all the shit food, consuming all the tech, Netflix binging all the time, like it's going to be really hard to find happiness. And likely you're going to internalize. I'm not the kind of person who can be happy. I and mean, you just don't right. know how you're being influenced. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. 
But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says. <laughs> and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small. And when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com mindlove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash mindlove. I mean, I, I don't like Instagram because I, gosh, it's just, I'm like, how does anyone enjoy this place? Because it seems to just feed on making you feel bad. And I, I think with Twitter, at least, even though everyone's kind of miserable and horrible, there's a certain amount of honesty on that site that I can kind of jive with. Whereas on Instagram, I just, it's like you're, you're presenting kind of this best version of yourself, which I understand, but it's, it seems so dangerous. Like if I was a young girl and just like the, the women on there, everybody looks Botox and fake. And I was looking at all my, like I went down like the mommy blogger rabbit hole and the doula rabbit hole. And I was like, everyone's a brand and there's something just so performative and gross about all of it. You know, it just starts to like give me the heebie-jeebies in a way that I can't necessarily, I I would say like they all have their own thing. I think people tend to be like more psychopathic and sociopathic <laughs> on Twitter, but the like narcissism on fire on Instagram is so intense and just overwhelming for me. And I've never been really able to like get into that that um that app thank god but i will find myself like hate scrolling for no reason <laughs> not even hate scrolling just scrolling to be like i i don't even you know know what i'm getting from it other than just making myself feel bad really it's really like an exercise in being like oh i don't look like that and i don't it's just it seems so unhealthy you have to find your corners. I don't like Instagram either. I've always been like a post and peace yeah. <laughs> type person. Um, but in the new mom journey, I found some things helpful. But you will find, gosh, the mom Facebook group world when you first have a baby is 
like a new kind of trigger. Everyone's telling everyone what they shouldn't do. Like you say something, like you post a photo, there's like a small toy in your child's crib and everyone's telling you you're going to kill your baby. (laughs) Like, Like that's not safe sleep. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it was so overwhelming. And so I had to, I have been limiting social and I find that I do it more and more, especially now where... It's like the things I want to talk about get censored. Uh, the, the things that yeah. feel important to me right now um, have this like disclaimer up regardless of what I'm saying about it. And it's really hard to feel motivated to spend time in a place when you can't be your authentic self or like you feel like you're being punished for it. And I know you were, like I said earlier, you were one of the first people to even experience that I think it was because of your Playboy article <laughs> that you wrote back in the day, not realizing you're going to get hate from it. How do you navigate that? Like, how do you find your center? Because even as somebody who I've made mindfulness a huge part of my life, when I get that pushback, it's still hard. Like, it's it's yeah. hard for me. It was worse a few years ago when I was kind of, I feel like everyone just kind of knows now. I think there's it's harder when you're like coming up into it was harder when I was like on the you know, my platform was growing rapidly. I feel like things have are a lot more sustainable. I don't, I'm not like seeking controversy. I think I really just kind of say what everyone's thinking in some respects. It's not too controversial and I'm not looking to like fight with people online. And I think navigating it is, that is something I could give a TED talk on. I mean, it is hard. It is very hard. And going from no one, you know, shouting in the wind to suddenly people are listening to you. So that's like a, just a strange transition that I'm not sure is something, something you can teach or something, something that you can learn unless you are going through it because every situation is different. And some are worse than others. You know, sometimes people are getting, it's like if you're just like tweeting into the wind forever and then suddenly you go viral and now everybody's picking apart every single thing you've ever said, that is horrifying because you are tweeting like no one's listening. You know, you're just like screaming into the void and suddenly it's not a void and that's disorienting for people and it does seem unfair to be holding people. But then I think, when you get, you know, I was in a different position where I've always taken, I've taken the, I've had like the attitude that I'm not a victim. I'm out here putting my opinion out there. I don't have to do this. And if people are going to criticize me or there's going to be blowback, well, that's the price I pay. Like that. Okay. I'm in, I'm like spouting my mouth off in public. You know, that's, I'm writing opinion pieces for places. Obviously, people aren't going to like my opinion. So the blowback never really bothered me. It bothers me when it gets dangerous, you know, when it takes on like a more sinister or scary. I've had getting, I've been piled on by pretty much every group online, but the scarier ones are like when you know, like the incels came for me once and the kind of like misogynistic men that lurk online and are generally a little bit younger, but they're kind of scary. You know, when they get worked up and they find a button, they can legitimately be frightening and you have to take precautions to protect yourself as a woman online. So 
I don't know. I think a lot of it too. I don't know. So much has changed being married and being in a good relationship and being just very content. And that has made it so that all that kind of external noise doesn't matter as much. It's like a job. I go say my things. People will get mad, but I'll log out and I have a loving husband and a dog and a baby growing. And those are things, those are the moments that have more meaning to me than getting caught up. And, and that's when I really realized too, like to go back to the idea of when I notice something is bad for me, is it, if it's robbing me of time being present with those people that I love and that stuff that means the most to me, then it needs to go, you know, it's generally, or it needs to be severely limited or I have to really reevaluate my relationship to it. And that can be anything. I mean, it, it is the addict in me. I just want to escape. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what. Sometimes it's just like my own brain. I know. I've been understanding that because I've felt that same way really my whole life. It's felt like I'm, it's felt like I've been running from something. And I think that things started to really change for me when I started feeling like I was running towards something. Like I was looking, I was excited for the future. Uh, but then every now and then those tendencies pop up and I'm starting to realize that it's not necessarily that I need to escape anything. It's that my nervous system is kind of shot from all the years that I put it through all the other things. And so it's about finding the calm and the chaos. And usually once I do that, I realize that there's really not as much chaos as I thought, <laughs> you know, yeah. even, even when there is like the world is crazy right now. And if I spend too much time online, uh, there was a time that I was sharing a lot of what I felt about what was happening. And, and I was not in a good place while doing that because I wasn't finding the balance in the present moment. And so, uh, when I got out of that, when I just like detox for a little bit. I was like, oh, my life is still pretty great. Yeah, there's some things I, I still want to fight for and there's some things I still want to bring awareness for. But when you're reading the news from all over the world and from everybody else, everybody else's point of view and you're just absorbing all of that, of course you're going to feel inner turmoil. You've just yeah. absorbed the thoughts of the entire world. <laughs> you know? I know. Yeah, it's interesting. I was talking to my friend about this just today and he was kind of in the culture wars, like very vocally speaking and was active and writing books and all this stuff and then kind of pivoted out and was doing more behind the scenes stuff, making a lot more money and um, not engaging at all. And I was saying, I'm like, you're an inspiration to me. I want that. I don't want it. And, and he was like, I promise you it sucks either way. Um, and it's worse when you're a passive observer of it than when you are actually, when you're actually participating in it and you have some kind of influence, maybe even just a little, because as my friend Inez always wants to repeatedly remind me when I'm like, I don't want to partake in the culture war. She's like, that's fine, but they're going to come to you. And so that's the interesting balance of. Right now, I'm in a position where I can kind of, to a certain extent, there are things where even even that's not 100% true, 
But I think it's different too when you have kids and school systems and stuff like that. Right now, like if you're a parent, the culture war has come to your doorstep in a way that it probably hadn't or hasn't in decades in this country. Like I really can't think of the last time that everyone in America has been so confronted with the choices that our governments are making around how it affects our children. And I'm sure there is a time. I just can't think of one where it's so present in every American's life in one way or another. Like the masking the kids, the vaccinating the kids, the this, the that, all all these things. Closing that, the school, locking sh- stuff opening down. Opening the school, like, closing all the, yeah, if you had, I mean, God bless anyone with like special needs children right now because I worked in that space for so long and they need so many resources. They need all that stuff got shut down. They need occupational therapy, physical therapy, like speech therapy. There's so many of these things that require one-on-one or group or just. And even just the thing about all like studies are showing that like almost all children are behind right now because, and it's something as simple as, and, and, and I don't care what side anybody is on about this. I just like to actually look at the pros and cons of everything. And when you're developing you take in sensory input from all sorts of things, including facial expressions. Yeah. And children aren't getting that very much. And so I am limiting. Like, I, I don't have Brave spend a lot of time around masked people. Like, of course, we go to the store and you might see it or whatever. But I worry about that. Uh, yeah. I worry about, like, is this scary for him? Or how is it going to interact with people later on? Is he going to be afraid of things? And and so, but then I have to also realize that when I spend too much time on one side of an argument, I can blow it up even more than it actually is. And I actually was thinking, uh, it was about a month ago, I was wearing sunglasses and I was like, okay, I actually get really anxious when I'm wearing a mask and Brave looks at me. Like, I feel like I'm ruining his life. <laughs> like, that's how I, like, my body's responding. But I'm like, okay, if it's very, very limited, is it that much different than me putting on sunglasses? Yeah. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know what I mean? And so I have to be careful because when I spend too much time on one side of an argument, it feels like death is coming for me and the world yeah. is going to collapse next year, you know? Yeah, that's something I've noticed with, everyone around me <laughs> as if they've like all lost their minds. I, I think there's just a tendency to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I, I understand it. This, this, this kind of came up yesterday in a small way. Someone online who's notorious for like the dumbest arguments in the entire world and the dumbest takes who I normally wouldn't even engage with made this whole take about kind of depression and how it's not a mental illness. And I was really just feeling bad for anyone who might be reading what he was saying about it, who might follow him and be depressed because now they feel like they have to either hide it or like man up or whatever. So I engaged, which I normally don't. But I understood from his point of view, like I think I understand, you know, star manning this concept that my friend Angel Eduardo kind of termed it. it looking at his argument, giving it the best faith intention or best faith kind of viewing of his argument. I I understand where he's coming from as a conservative who's been on the backside of this kind of culture war and who feels like 
they have a severe distrust of the institutions, which I get, like the American Association of Psychology, all these, all of these or institutions and organizations have been captured by an ideology, which is a shame that something like depression should be kind of caught in the crossfire of this. But at the same time, his argument of like, this is a slippery slope to overdiagnosing everybody with something and putting everybody on meds. How could you, you could apply that same argument to like shell shock and we never would have got to the point where we're diagnosing it with PTSD. So just because the language of therapy is probably being overused everywhere and there's this massive overcorrection in our culture from not talking about mental illness to almost glorifying it and making everybody kind of diseased doesn't mean that there also isn't depression and anxiety and these things are real and we need to address them and people have them. <laughs> so it's like I understand reacting to the the cultural aspect of it on either side of an argument. And I see that. But then, I mean, just today there was this like whole poll that came out about like the left wing take, you know, there it was like the numbers were crazy. It was something like, like a certain percentage of Americans think you should be jailed if you're like anti-vaccinated online. <laughs> like what happened to liberals too? Like they lost their minds. And I think it's just that overcorrection. Like you said, when you're just immersed in like one side of an argument, it starts to feel existential. And because everybody has, everything's been politicized everybody feels like this is a personal attack like on them and their family. And you have to be able to like pull yourself out of that and see reason, you know, and like recognize that this too shall pass. But it's tough. I mean, I get it. It is tough. I, I'm in this like 24-7 and I go out and it's all anyone wants to talk about everywhere, even when I'm out in real life. And I understand because it has it's, all these things are having real world implications for businesses, for personal lives, for people and everybody on is on different sides of it. And I'll hear people arguing about it and like the nail salon and it sounds like a Twitter argument in real life. And I'm like, I can't escape this. And I just want to, I just want to get my nails done. It reminds me of the, uh, conversations around addiction being a disease or not. And I was just talking to somebody else on a podcast uh, that I was on yesterday. And I've read both sides of the argument. I've had a lot of uh, addiction in my family. My dad was sober my whole life. A lot of my family members have are either actual alcoholics right now or they're in recovery. And now that I'm going through my own process of letting go of alcohol, like it, it's been uh, a process for me for a long time. Like I started thinking about it, like it would life be better without it years ago, but I kept talking myself into it and I was very resistant to a lot of the messaging around it. And so I was like, well, I I don't feel like an alcoholic, so these resources aren't going to help me. And so it created resistance, but I read the biology of desire by Dr. Mark Lewis. And he's very much like addiction is not a disease. And he has all these amazing scientific arguments as to why and what's happening in the brain and whatever. But what I came away from it more so was that to me, it doesn't really matter. I mean, maybe it should, it does in a broader aspect. I'm not the one making that decision, thank God. But like for me personally, when something like that comes up, there was a time where 
knowing I was bulimic was helpful, but thinking of it as a lifelong disease was not because it right. it didn't give me hope to heal. And right. so for me, I had to believe that there was something, this was something I could be recovered from. And my process of giving up alcohol has also not included necessarily calling myself an alcoholic forever. I word it in a way that I experienced addiction. And so, and I know that I'm susceptible to that because of my experience and my neural pathways. And so looking at that helps me. For other people, it's helpful for them to just say, I'm an alcoholic so that they don't go back down that road. And so what works for you? Like, does this feel empowering or disempowering for you? And you can live your reality that way. And, and we all experience the reality in a different way. So it doesn't matter if this person over here thinks this and I think this, as long as however we're thinking about it is actually helping us. <laughs> yeah, I think that is true. And in that example, the way people are self-identifying in the spectrum of addiction isn't necessarily affecting other people. You know, they're, yeah. the choices and decisions and things we're fighting about now, one would argue are affecting other people and people argue for different on different sides of that argument when I think everyone has some kind of a point. And so the discourse around all of this stuff has deteriorated so much that it's like nothing has really made me want to shut down more than the fact that I feel like people just, they're not allowing for other perspectives. And this did start in like the Trump years. It was very us versus them, black versus white mentality. Like they're, it's almost like everyone has a borderline personality disorder. It's <laughs> like, true. Well, it's that, that movie it's like Social Dilemma explained to you and then like you cut them off forever. I'm like, everyone's been given like a borderline personality disorder in the five, past five or six years. I know. Um, it, it's that movie Social Dilemma, which I <laughs> I liked and disliked because I felt like it was trying to it was like trying to show how biases are created while also creating their own biases. Like, like all the words were, if you just listen to the audio of it, it seemed very unbiased, but if you're actually watching it, it would say words and then only bring up one image. Like it was still had its own Jaren biases. And I couldn't even watch it. We like c- couldn't really get through it because Jaren's like, is this news to anyone? He's like, right. who's watching this? And they're like, mind is blown that they don't, this seems, I was like, I thought everyone knew this. Right. Well, that echo chamber of like, you know, the algorithm is trying to keep you in the app, like we talked about earlier, but then it's only showing your ideas. And so then all of a sudden it feels existential because that's all you're seeing. And now you've, you don't even realize every single side, if you are even relatively extreme, you're at least a little bit brainwashed. Like this is what happened. And so how do you wade through your own biases? What's your process to make sure that you're not in that echo chamber or going too far to one side so that you become irrational? Uh, That's been a challenge. I know that I was already coming from pretty far from one side and didn't even realize it. So I was unaware of my bias until I got caught in the crossfire of the culture wars. And that was a wake up call. And then you know, there are all these kind of terms for it. I think being red-pilled is the one that's the most common in terms of 
I don't like that term because I don't identify as a conservative. I think there's, I mean, just yesterday I was like going after conservative media for how absolutely horrible they are on the topic of mental health and generally find them to be, instead of focused on helping their audience, they're just like feeding them rage all day. And it's not aspirational. I think the left wing media ecosystem is a lot more diverse in that sense and much farther ahead in terms of having probably too far ahead. This is the overcorrection in in the language and talking about therapy and mental health and all of this stuff. So I come from already a, a bias and then waking up to those biases in public was very uncomfortable, but it was a great learning experience. You know, I just basically got schooled like over and over again and still continue to. Part of the way I keep myself in check is I keep putting my ideas out there and then people push back and I'm like, oh, that is a good point. Oh, that is uh, like, yeah, I do see that. Even if I don't agree, I understand where you're coming from. Maybe I was not interpreting that in the best faith. I was interpreting it from my previous bias, like having the ability to put the ideas out and have them challenged, which is why I really don't like censorship. I find to be very helpful because you will hear it and you can develop a lot of people who you respect who will push back. And, you know, if you don't surround yourself with like sycophants, which I think is important, have those friends. I make sure that I have a diverse variety of friends. So I'm not just hearing one thing. I luckily come from a huge family where there's a lot of ideological diversity and everybody still manages to get along for the most part. And I think really disidentifying in the past year in particular, I have been really having a lot of conversations with people about de-radicalization the process of radicalization and seeing really brilliant people, brilliant minds, friends, family. I'm like, everyone's being radicalized. We're all being radicalized. And I, and how to really keep myself in check from, you can just like let the algorithm radicalize you mindlessly. You know, it's, it's not, it's, it's easy to do. And making sure that I'm, I think one of the first thing that goes out the window is the like good faith that you have for the people on quote unquote the other side of your argument or the other sides of the argument. So the minute that you find yourself being like those people are evil, you know, they want <laughs> they're evil. I, I that I feel like should be a flat a red flag that you're maybe in a radicalization cycle. <laughs> Us versus them can be dangerous. Taking I, three people off my evil list as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough though because every, it's much easier. Sometimes I wish I was like an ideologue. You know, I'm just, I'm not an ideologue. It's not something that has ever been appealing to me. I don't know if it's from moving around a lot and seeing lots of clicks. I don't, I generally just distrust groups. And so I have a natural like revulsion from people who gather around like a cult of personality or people who gather around an ideology and that that becomes the thing, the thing that the religion that we all worship, even organized religion. I mean, part of the reason that 12 step was so hard for me is because I just don't like groups. I'm like, I don't know if I want to 
be part of some group. And luckily the tent was big enough that um, I didn't have to really believe anything other. I didn't really have to have anything. And they make this very clear other than a desire to quit drinking. And that was it. And that kept it pretty. I didn't have to believe anything. I, you know, they try and say that they'll try. Some people will, who have been there a long time will obviously like proselytize. Everybody likes to get on their little soapboxes. It's it's hard. It's human nature. And we all have soapboxes now that we can easily get on. It's not easy. I read a lot of stuff that is counter to what I'm believing. I ask myself, why am I invested in believing this is true? And my husband is freaking brilliant. And he is like one of the most rigorous thinkers that I know in terms of checking his own biases and being rational and checking in with himself and checking his arguments. And so having the benefit of somebody like that who can, who I can bounce ideas off of and really question, is this logical? Am I being histrionic? Am I being um, hysterical? is this, you know, we're both addicts. And so I have to really watch out for my tendency to be addicted to doom in a certain way. I mean, I'm always looking for, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop and kind of that, what's it called when you're like catastrophic thinking is just part of my MO. And Jaren's really good about calling me out on that. And sometimes I'm right. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes he jokes that he lacks the ability. He like he'll lack the catastrophic thinking that I had because when I in February of 2020, I was like, we need to get supplies like you need to. And he's like, you are being crazy because I was looking at what was going on in China and I was like obsessed with it. Went down these rabbit holes. He's like, you're crazy. I'm worried about you. Like, and I was like, this shit's coming. A million people are going to die. And he was like, you're crazy. <laughs> and now he's like, I really just lack the catastrophic thinking ability that you have. See, it's funny because I did the same thing. Uh, I went into it for about two weeks, but then I somehow entered it on the other side. And I knew by like the first of April, I was like, we're going to have Vax passports. Like things are going to be shut down. <laughs> like I'd found that circle and I was like, this is where it's going and maybe I created it. (laughs) But uh, it's interesting, though, because when you talk about groups, I am the same and opposite at the same time. It's like I've always wanted to belong in a group, and I'll get there, and then I'm there for like a couple of days, and I'm immediately evolving out of it. I'm like, okay, I was here for a minute. (laughs) Now I'm continuously going. And so I've never, now I just know, like, it would be very difficult for me to find a group of something unless it was a group all about like continuous expansion (laughs) because otherwise I don't really feel like I fit. But what's interesting though is being a public personality online that is willing to speak exactly what you think and, and have ideas that are controversial, you're doing this in a public way to where I know you've even said there was a lot that I was wrong about last year. And then that's cemented online. How do you remain comfortable with evolving your ideas when you've already put out ideas, maybe sometimes enthusiastically as publicly as possible. Because I know that holds a lot of people back from speaking what they're saying. It's because they're like, I don't know if I'm going to believe this next year. I'm going to be on this side next year. Well, I think publicly 
if you're putting ideas out publicly and then you're wrong and publicly taking responsibility for them, it still lends to your credibility as somebody who's putting ideas out there. You're willing to evaluate with new information. I've also had people call me out on it. I went on Glenn Beck Radio and he was like, about a year ago, you know, there, <laughs> I've had people keep me in check. I have a lot of friends who will... I'm, I'm also not afraid to be wrong. Like there was just so much that I got wrong and either I can live in fear of putting ideas out there and then I can understand the fear because you're often defined by like that one thing, but people aren't going to whatever. I mean, the only reason I would be afraid of saying something would be if it was costing me financially. So people might be saying things they don't even believe or doubling down on things that they're wrong about because it's still financially beneficial for them to do so. I think if you are a full thinking person who's more dedicated to ideas of being curious and open and true rigorous kind of thinking, then your audience should respect that and value that and know that. And they should also be, I don't want an audience that's going to do the same thing that I've had that friends have done to me where they're like, oh, you said one thing I don't like, I'm gone. And that's fine. If people are going to do that, I understand it. But I think you can curate uh, the same kind of audience that you, that is open-minded and curious and thinking if you are living that example and you're not just like doubling down on on bad takes forever and not taking responsibility for things that you might have been wrong about i love michael Shermer, who's like a skeptic really pointed out like we only have the tendency to remember our wins you know it's it's like if we like that psychic moment you had or whatever that feeling is like you're not going to remember the times you were wrong you're just the brain is going to remember the the wins that you have so remembering that I'm I'm going to be more inclined to highlight the times that I'm right and not the myriad of times that I'm wrong. But having those things in writing and video makes it very easy. I don't want to be held hostage by my opinions from like five years ago or even two years ago. If somebody wants to be like, look, back then you said this, it's like, yeah. And then I changed my mind. You know, we <laughs> have to allow for people to grow and evolve and change their minds. And one of the ways that you do that is by being the person that does that for other people and also just continuously doing that yourself and setting that example of being like, whatever. I mean, I'm going to be wrong. Like, I'm not going to get things right all the time. I 100% thought Trump was going to win. I was like, there's, I don't even see how he could lose. And I was very wrong about that. Although a lot of people might be like, but he did win. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know what to think about that, honestly. Like, like I mean, it's just funny. Like, you, even as I say that, I'm like, there are people out there going, but he did one. And I had somebody who works at Slate was like brave enough to come on my podcast. I say brave. They shouldn't be brave because I'm not like a gotcha co- podcast. But anyone who is like a, a very far left wing person who comes and talks to me, I really respect because generally they won't even like talk to people who have conversations with people on the other side. And my whole audience, so so much of my audience was like, I really disagreed with a lot of what this guy said, but I respect that you even had him on and had the conversation and I need to hear this. You know, they, I was like so 
impressed and proud of my audience for not all being like, you know, some of them were like, this guy's an idiot, but a lot more were just like, you know, I need to hear I'm this person's outside of my echo chamber and I need to hear it. It's funny because I had completely different beliefs about specific things when I first started this podcast. (laughs) So I I can remember, I remember the times that I was wrong very vividly. Like when, when I changed my mind, all of a sudden there's like a Rolodex of all the times I said something else and I'm like, oh, face palm. But at the same time, like you said, the more you're able to sort of step up and say, hey, I changed my mind about this because I'm always going to be changing my mind. That is what evolution is. It just... This feels like a bigger deal because people have people either cling to it or they resist it. Whereas other things I can change my mind about and it doesn't affect anybody else. And to be fair, most of these things shouldn't affect anybody else. Anyways, we're just all making each other's opinions affect us. But, uh, yeah, to just be open and say, this is my evolution and this I'm doing it publicly. And so you guys can evolve too. (laughs) It's actually very, very liberating, but it's uh, so liberating. I love this conversation. I love every conversation with you. And uh, you have an amazing podcast where you have these types of casual conversations with some pretty well-known people as well. So for listeners who want to know more about you, what you're doing in this world, ways to connect, where's the best place for them to connect with you online? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Bridget Fetacy. I'm I have an Instagram in the same place. You can go to Fetacy.com. I have a subscriber site. A lot of stuff is outside of the paywall, but behind the paywall, we have really nice community actually of really diverse people. And we share recipes and dog pictures and I do workouts with the ladies. And we that's like my safe space on the internet. And you can find Walk-Ins Welcome wherever podcasts are available. And Dumpster Fire is on YouTube and Rumble my show, although it's also a podcast now too. So I think that's it. All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash X74. Your challenge for this week is inspired by the conversations we had today. Your challenge is to practice a little mindfulness online. When you see a post or a comment or a tweet or whatever that you do not agree with, just scroll on by. Scroll on by without leaving another comment, without trying to change someone's mind, without getting pulled into the emotions of it all. And just use that as a trigger to take a deep breath, send love to someone who has different thoughts than you or different beliefs than you, Thank them for adding to the spectrum of this beautiful universe and scroll on by. Earlier in December, I did a number of episodes about addiction. And one of the main lessons from addiction experts is that the more you make a new action, the more that you don't succumb to your impulses, the more you strengthen neural pathways toward a different result. So every single time that you allow yourself to be pulled into the emotions of some posts that you disagree with, whether you think you are 100% right and you cannot see how the other side can be that dumb or ignorant or whatever it is that's going on in your mind, the more you succumb to those mindless impulses or the emotional impulses, the harder it is to curb yourself later. 
And the more you make a new decision, the more you just practice taking a deep breath, sending love and scrolling by, the more you make that your default patterning. So think about it when you think that it's just one last time. Well, you're making it one time more difficult to make a new decision. So it's so important that we remember that we are all one, that we're all connected. We are not as different as our ego wants to convince ourselves that we are. So remind yourself of that. At your core, you are love. At your core, that person that you disagree with is love. Maybe you've lost friends in the last two years. Maybe it was their doing, or maybe it was your doing, or maybe you just realized I can't be friends with somebody like that. But the more you do that, the less love that you're actually surrounding yourself with. And the thing is, you can still make intentional choices on who you want to spend time with. And maybe certain people don't make the cut anymore. But there's a difference between doing it out of hate for the other person or dislike for the other person or disrespect for the other person versus love for yourself. And all the love that you put out there, you also receive in return. That love comes from inside of you. You are the only one who actually feels it. And yeah, there's exceptions to all this, but these are just things to keep in mind when we're all here trying to heal the divide in our world. And it starts with ourselves. So let me know how it goes. Maybe you reach out to an old friend. Maybe you, like I said, scroll past a comment you would otherwise comment on. Whatever it is, let me know what you do. My Instagram is mindlovemelissa. There's a few ways to support the show. You can support one of my sponsors or join Mind Love Premium at mindlove.com premium. You can also share this episode on social media or directly with a friend, or you can take a screenshot and tag Mind Love Melissa, Mind Love Podcast, and Bridget Fetasy. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today, and I'll see you next week. 